Good afternoon, everyone, uh, and welcome on a very cold Oxford day to a very warm welcome at St. Anthony's. My name is Nick Stadlin. Uh, I'm a retired High Court judge, and last year I had the honour of being the Alistair Horne Visiting Fellow here at St. Anthony's, working on a book about Bram Fisher and the other lawyers and defendants at the Rivonia trial at which Nelson Mandela was sent to prison. Uh, on behalf of Catherine Costello, uh, from St Anthony's and myself, I would like to uh, welcome you to what is the inaugural seminar in a series of seminars uh, on law and politics. Uh, this series um, is a pilot for what is hoped uh, will be an ongoing series of lectures and seminars here at St Anthony's raising issues of legal and political interest. The title of today's seminar is the rule of conscience and the rule of law. Is breaking the law ever justified? At first blush, perhaps a rather surprising question to engage three former judges and a former solicitor or attorney as they're called in South Africa. Uh, but the idea for the seminar has its origins in a question which I was asked last year by Matthew Paris in a radio program in the Radio 4 series Great Lives about Bram Fisher. Bram Fisher was the QC who led for the defence uh, of Nelson Mandela and his co-defendants uh, at the Rivonia trial uh, and saved them from the gallows. After the trial, he was himself put on trial for being a communist. And in the middle of the trial, despite the fact that he was a lawyer and despite the fact that he had given undertakings on his bail, he jumped bail and went underground uh, as a defiant gesture of opposition to the apartheid regime. Matthew Paris asked me what advice I would have given Bram Fisher uh, if I'd been there, and he'd asked my opinion. Uh, looking back on it, I think I may slightly have fudged the question, uh, or the answer. I said, well, if you ask me as a former QC and a High Court judge uh, in England in 2015, would I ever advise anybody to break the law? The answer is obviously no. But what about South Africa in 1965? Bram Fischer was chairman of the banned South African Communist Party, uh, but he was also chairman of the Johannesburg Bar Council, on which he had served for some 20 years, the most long-standing member of the Johannesburg Bar Council, and was deeply committed to the rule of law, which he had practiced for 30 years. Uh, an illustration of that is that before going underground, he ensured that he was in credit with the taxman. But after the Sharpeville massacre, in which 69 unarmed black Africans were killed by the police uh, in a peaceful protest, the National Party government uh, introduced draconian legislation. Thousands were locked up uh, and placed in detention without charge, many in solitary confinement. The ANC was banned. Torture was used to get confessions. People were killed in detention or committed suicide in detention under torture. And finally, the notorious so-called Sabukwe clause, the clause that was used to detain Robert Sabukwe um, a series of times without any redress to the courts, was introduced by the government uh, so that it was open to the Minister of Justice indefinitely to continue periods of 180-day detention. And for Bram Fischer, that was the turning point. In his view, the pillars of the rule of law had been smashed by the apartheid government. They had changed the rules. They were no longer prepared to play by the rules. And in his view, that meant that he was released himself from playing from those rules. They were laws, he took the view, that were, because they were passed by a parliament in which three quarters of the population had no voice, and because they were aimed not at suppressing communism, which was the overt purpose in the name of the uh, Suppression of Communism Act, but since their purpose was to silence the opposition of the large majority of people to the apartheid government uh, in its uh, intent in depriving them of fundamental human rights solely on the basis of their colour, he considered himself uh, excused from fidelity to law. When he pleaded guilty, finally, having been arrested and charged with the much more serious offence of sabotage 
and conspiring to overthrow the government uh, by sabotage, which carried a life sentence, which he duly got, as he knew he would. He said, my conscience doesn't permit me to afford these laws such recognition as even a plea of guilty would afford. Uh, therefore, even though I know I will be convicted by this court, uh, I am not prepared to do other than plead not guilty. I believe that the future may well say that I acted correctly. Well, these issues which, uh, with which Bram Fischer struggled uh, are not confined to South Africa uh, under apartheid. What about Nazi Germany? What about Vichy France? Closer to home, what about the case of Clive Ponting, the civil servant who leaked documents from the Ministry of Defence to a Labour MP in the Falklands War about the sinking of the Belgrano, was prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. The judge directed the jury that his public interest defence was bad in law. The jury ignored the judge and acquitted, no doubt, because they thought the laws that, in that case were unjust. These uh, academic issues have engaged the attention of uh, illustrious academics for, their, for decades, uh, and they don't lend themselves to easy answers. Is the acid test whether the laws are passed by a democratically elected government or parliament? In which case, what about the Nazis who were initially uh, had a democratic parliamentary mandate? If the test is whether the laws are denying fundamental human rights, who decides uh, whether a, a right is a fundamental human right or not? And if it is justified to break the law, is any breach justified or, or does it depend on how you break the law? and by reference to what principles or criteria. We are hugely privileged today to have on the panel three immensely distinguished lawyers for whom these questions were not abstract academic issues. They confronted them on a daily basis in their practice of the law in apartheid South Africa. Our first speaker is Kate O'Regan, who was taught briefly law by the great Arthur Chaskelson, who was one of Bram Fischer's junior counsel in the Rivonia trial, uh, and later the first president of the Constitutional Court of South Africa, uh, and who founded, with Sir Sidney Kentridge's wife, Felicia, uh, the Legal Resources Centre, which fought cases carefully chosen to challenge apartheid laws. Kate O'Regan uh, practiced in South Africa, principally in uh, areas of labor law and land rights and represented trades unions and advised the ANC. In 1994, Nelson Mandela had the wisdom and foresight to appoint her as one of the first judges of the Constitutional Court, where she served with distinction for 13 years as I think one of the only two then women justices on that court. She is now the inaugural director of the new Institute for Human Rights at Oxford University. Uh, and a few weeks ago, she gave this year's Bram Fisher lecture at Rhodes House entitled Fidelity to Law, How Bram Fisher Illuminates a Perennial Debate. So she's been thinking about these issues uh, and we look forward to hearing what she has to say now. Kate O'Reilly. with me while I make sure the mechanisms work. <clears throat> Can people hear me at the back? Good. Well, good evening and thank you for that warm welcome, Nick. It's a, it's a great honour and pleasure to be on the panel with yourself and with Sir Sidney Kentridge, who I had the privilege to work with as a judge of the Constitutional Court in the very earliest years of the court, and also with Lord Joel Joffe. So thanks for the invitation. I thought I would start out or approach the problem that we've been here to discuss by thinking about the philosophy of law and the philosophy that lies behind it. And before I do that, I should tell you a little story that Ronald Walkin tells in one of his books, which is a story he overheard on a train when traveling from Oxford to London. He was sitting in a carriage with an elderly woman who he presumed to be the mother of the younger woman in the carriage. And they were having a heart to heart quite teary-eyed heart-to-heart about some family difficulties. And finally, the elderly woman turned to the younger woman and said, well, there's only one thing for it. Be philosophical. Don't think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I'm now going to be philosophical, but hopefully it is going to cause you all to think about it a little. And the question it seems to me that we're discussing this evening is the question of whether breaking the law is ever morally justified. In thinking about this question, we really need to start by determining what we think the relationship is between law and morals. If it's our view, as it is the view of natural lawyers, that law is only law if it is moral, then the answer that we have to the question today is pretty straightforward. Because unless law is moral, then it's not law, and there cannot be either a moral or a legal obligation to obey it. But on the other hand, if we accept that whether law is law is not determined by its moral content, then the question of what circumstances we have a moral obligation not to obey the law, or whether it's morally appropriate not to obey the law, raises a more difficult question. Now, of course, the position that there should be a separation between law and morals is closely associated with the jurisprudence faculty of this university through a string of professors of jurisprudence, but particularly Professor Hart, who, of course, famously argued in his 1957 Oliver Wendell Holmes lecture that whether law is valid is a different and separate question to whether it is morally sound. Hart recognised that this clear distinction between law and morals had been asserted by the utilitarian philosopher Jeremy Bentham. And the consequence of the distinction is that the fact that a rule of law is immoral does not mean that it is not a rule of law. And the fact that something is morally desirable does not make it a rule of law. As a consequence of asserting this distinction, Bentham insisted that the duty of the citizen was to obey punctually, but censure freely. This approach, he argued, would avoid the error of the anarchist who thought he was free not merely to censure the law, but to disregard it, as well as that of the reactionary who argues that this is the law and therefore that is what ought to be, an approach described inimitably by Bentham as obsequious quietism. So in addressing our question this evening, I'm going to assume that the distinction between law and morals is not only an accurate empirical description of how law is in most of the societies we know, but that it is indeed a conceptually sound one as well. And once we accept that whether the law is valid is separate from whether it is morally sound, the question of whether we should obey law becomes an important moral question, and an old one. In Plato's Crito, Socrates, from his prison cell, debated with his old friend Crito. Socrates had been convicted for corrupting the youth of Athens and for impiety by an Athenian jury and sentenced to death. And Crito tried to persuade him that he should escape the death penalty and flee into exile. Crito offered to bribe the guards and arrange for Socrates to live with friends in Thessaly. But Socrates refused. Plato records the discussion of the moral question as to whether it was appropriate for Socrates to evade his penalty, and in it, Socrates produces this voice of the laws of Athens to debate the question. In their recent discussion of the question of whether there is a moral obligation to obey the law, Sandy Steele and Nicholas McBride suggest that virtually every single argument that has been made over the past 2,400 years in support of the idea that there is a moral obligation to obey, to obey the law can be found in that Crito debate. They identify seven arguments, some of which are overlapping, and I'm just going to pick up five of them which seem to be important to have in our, the back of our minds when we're thinking about this question. The first is the idea of consent. It's really a social contract idea, as several of these ideas are. The pro proposition is that because we live in a country, we have make it, made a choice to live there and to abide by its laws. Socrates formulated this as follows. We do say, however, that if any of you remains here after he has observed the system by which we dispense justice and otherwise manage our city, 
then you have agreed with us by your conduct to obey whatever orders are given. Now, of course, there are difficulties with this notion of consent. We know that most of us don't, in fact, make an, ac uh, an active choice as to where we live or to whether we, in fact, accept the laws. But you can see the social contract idea underpinning that. A second idea that informs the idea of whether we should obey the law is the idea that we will harm society if we don't, that we need to build a broad-based commitment to law-abiding behaviour in order to make society possible. And if we accept a tendency to break the laws somewhat easily, we will damage society itself. This resonates with Bentham's idea of the anarchist who might damage society if they could simply choose not to obey the laws at will. So that's the second sense in which uh, it was argued in Crito and in which uh, philosophers since then have argued that we do have an obligation to obey the law. A third one is a sort of fair play argument, as Steele and McBride put it. There are several related ideas here. One relates to a situation where you participate in an adjudicative system, you decide to refer a dispute to a court or to an arbitrator, and the proposition is that once you do that, once you submit, as it were, to a, an adjudicative process, you're bound to accept its outcome, even if it's unfavourable to you, because you would almost certainly accept its outcome if it was favourable to you, and that carries with it a sense of moral obligation. Another one, related but more broad, is the idea that you can't really pick and choose to which laws you obey and which not, because by doing so you might avoid those laws which impose legal burdens upon you, but expect others to benefit you by shouldering burdens that the laws impose upon them. So these are sort of fair play, also somewhat social contract related ideas. A fourth idea, one which I think has got quite a lot of resonance, and perhaps it's that's where my judicial background shows, is a duty to support institutions. That, in fact, in modern societies, in fact, in all societies, institutions are important, and there is at least a rebuttable presumption of a moral obligation to support and comply with just institutions, because you may completely undermine them if you don't. And a final idea is, it's, it's less a social contract idea but it's a, an idea in, of, of how, uh, what it means to be an individual in a society. Instead of seeing societies as very atomized, it's an identity argument that suggests that as human beings we're constituted by the society in which we live just as much as we constitute that society. And that requires us to recognize an obligation to the society and its well-being that is part of our obligation, our individual obligations and that we will damage our society if we don't obey its laws. So it's, it's a variant of the harm argument, but it's it based on a conception of a human being which is somewhat different to the harm argument. So that's a range of the arguments that are out there in the philosophy. Some of them, I think, are stronger than others. And the strength of them, it seems, is also dependent on two extraneous considerations. The first is whether the relevant law is moral itself. And the second is whether the legal and political system which conceived the law is itself a just legal and political system. So if we're thinking about a duty to support institutions, the more just the institution, the more just that it applies, the stronger our feeling is that the obligation to obey the law is. Now that is, to some extent, resting on a separate moral obligation to comply with something that may already be moral. If the law is just, it probably is got a moral content. And similarly, if there's a, a just legal and political system, the ideas of identity, of supporting institutions, of harm, all seem to be things that require us to support them in a moral way because the system itself is just. So if we recognize these two extraneous factors, we realize that where a law is just and the legal and political system is just, the moral obligation not to break the law is at its strongest. This is the easy case. But where either the relevant law is not just, or the legal system is not just, then the moral obligation to obey the law will be attenuated if it survives at all. Of course, 
As soon as we step away from the simple clarity of a just law and a just order, the moral quandaries deepen. How does one measure the weight of the obligation to obey the law when the law itself, or the society which begat it, is not just? These are questions that do not admit of easy answers. They are further complicated by the fact that we need to recognise that moral obligations themselves often conflict and indeed may at times be incommensurable. So we may accept that even if there is an obligation morally to obey the law, at times that obligation may conflict with another one. And how we address that conflict further deepens the challenge. Unjust societies generate these debates in an acute manner. Apartheid South Africa was just such a society. Perhaps one of the reasons why the debate was so acute in South Africa was because although the system, the legal system, was clearly unjust and racist, the judicial system continued to exist in a manner that was somewhat autonomous of the apartheid state, and it was possible at times to find, for, to find that courts produced just outcomes against the state. A famous example of that was the acquittal in the treason trial. It's precisely this paradox at the heart of apartheid that makes the question we are posed with today so difficult under apartheid. The possibility that law could sometimes be just deepened the sense that it could not be ignored without moral complexity. This idea of the possibility of justice in a legal system was perhaps best explored by E.P. Thompson in his memorable study of the Walton Black Act of 1723, an act that created offences aimed at curbing poaching and hunting in Waltham Forest. At the end of his study, he concluded, there is a difference between arbitrary power and the rule of law. We ought to expose the shams and inequities which may be concealed beneath the law. But the rule of law itself, the imposing of effective inhibitions upon power, and the defence of the citizen from power's all-intrusive claims, seems to me to be an unqualified human good. To deny or belittle this good in this dangerous century, when the resources and pretensions of power continue to enlarge, is a desperate error of intellectual abstraction. It is to throw away a whole inheritance of struggle about law and within the forms of law, whose continuity can never be fractured without bringing men and women into immediate danger. This passage from E.P. Thompson's account of a rather recundant piece of 18th century English legislation came to be widely read and quoted by South African human rights lawyers. Many of us, opponents of the apartheid state, often schooled in Marxism, expected the use of law to reflect the realities of the uh, material power in South Africa. But the reality of what happened was often different. Law did sometimes produce just outcomes, not as often as we might have liked, but neither as rarely as a theoretical assertion that the law is the tool of the ruling class could accommodate. The experience of South African human rights lawyers thus echoed the conclusions that E.P. Thompson had drawn from his historical analysis of the 18th century legislation. Thompson's statement that the forms and rhetoric of law acquire a distinct identity which may on occasion inhibit power and afford some protection to the powerless struck a chord with human rights lawyers in South Africa. So the possibility of justice in the law is one of the reasons why there is a sense, especially amongst lawyers, that disobeying the law might require justification, even when we're speaking of an unjust law in an unjust society. And it was just such a conflict and acknowledgement that Brahms Fisher spoke of when he spoke from the dock. I accept, my lord, he said, the general rule that for the protection of a society laws should be obeyed. But when the laws themselves become immoral, and require the citizen to take part in an organized system of oppression, if only by silence and apathy, then I believe that a higher duty arises, and this compels me to refuse to recognize such laws. So Brown spoke not only of the unjust nature of the laws,
but of the unjust nature of the society that begat them. He in, in his message to the court considering his or the bar's application to strike him from the role, he said, cruel discriminatory laws multiply each year. Bitterness and hatred of the government is growing daily. No outlet for this hatred is permitted because political rights have been removed. So he spoke both of the content of the laws and of the, of the unjust legal system, political system that underpinned them. So I think what thinking about South Africa shows us is that the easy case from a conceptual philosophical perspective is the case of just laws in a just society in which case the moral obligation to obey law is at its strongest. When we step off that straight platform or safe platform in any direction, either into a just society which has an unjust law or into an unjust society with either a just law or an unjust law, we leave behind the clarity and straightforwardness of the moral answers that the conceptual philosophy can provide us with. I don't think we ever move away from a situation where we can speak that no justification is required to disobey law. But what is clear, it seems to me, is that the strength of the moral obligation deepens when the law is in question is just and deepens further if the overall legal and political system is just. But of course, we can have some vigorous debates about what we think are just laws and just societies. But in a just society, by respecting law, as Joseph Raz has argued, we express our confidence and trust in the law's justice. He went on, respect for law grows as friendships do. It develops as does one's sense of membership in a community. An obligation to obey law is in such cases part and parcel of one's attitudes towards the community. One feels that one betrays the community if one breaks the law to gain advantage or out of convenience or thoughtlessness. And this regardless of whether the violation actually harms anyone, just as one can be disloyal to a friend without harming him or any of his interests without even offending him. If this is so, then breaking the law does require justification. But how cogent and powerful that justification must be will depend in the first case place on the justice of the law in question and in the second on the justice of the political system. What is clear is that the very possibility of law will always be in grave peril when citizens regularly consider that disobedience to law is justified. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kate. Um, our second speaker is Sir Sidney Kentridge, uh, QC. Uh, he famously represented the family of Steve Biko at his inquest, uh, and by a combination of devastating cross-examination and remorseless logic, demonstrated to the satisfaction of the entire world, with the sole <coughs> exception of the magistrate who had to decide the inquest, that that Biko had indeed been killed while in uh, police detention. Uh, of particular relevance to the topic under discussion today, uh, Sydney also acted for Grant Fisher, first in when the Bar Council, with indecent haste, moved of its own motion uh, an application for Grant Fisher to be disbarred for dishonourable conduct uh, as a result of his jumping bail, uh, and then much more seriously the following year when he was captured uh, and put on trial uh, for his life, and the prosecution asked for the death sentence. Uh, in his trial for sabotage, uh, attempting to overthrow the state by sabotage. The same charge, the same conspiracy as Nelson Mandela, and Bram Fisher made a speech in the dock from that same dock, as Mandela made his famous speech. Uh, for a brief period, uh, Sydney also acted, served as an acting justice in the new constitutional court in South Africa, in which he contributed to the landmark decision that uh, capital punishment had no place in the new South Africa under its new constitution. More recently, he has had no less distinguished a career at the English bar, uh, and some time ago now, he displayed his youthful vigor by spending his 90th birthday addressing the Supreme Court uh, from the bar. It is, in fact, 60 years uh, to the year 
that he prepared the most devastating demolition of the prosecution case in the treason trial, where 156 defendants of all colours were put on trial for five years, uh, not all of them for five years, uh, and uh, Sydney's particular task was to demolish the case on treason, uh, and it was a famous victory. Um, please welcome Sydney Kentridge. You will have noticed that the question for this evening was put in the widest possible terms. Can a breach of the law ever be justified? Meaning, of course, morally justified. If you put it like that, the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, think of the mother who steals a loaf of bread to feed her starving children. Uh, think of the German family who, under the Nazi regime, uh, hid a Jewish family in the attic at great, at great risk to their own lives. So one says, of course, yes. And of course, uh, many of the examples given in these discussions concern Nazi laws or the laws of apartheid, which most of us, if probably all of us here, would regard as repellent in the highest degree. It's not so simple when one thinks of law in a civilized country, such as the country we live in, and that can be illustrated by a case which fairly recently was much publicized in the press. It happened in Belfast. There was a married couple in Belfast who owned a bakery, it was a popular bakery, and one day they were requested by a same-sex couple who were about to be married to make them a wedding cake. And what they wanted on the wedding cake in letters of icing was a congratulation to them on the fact that they were making a same-sex marriage. And the owners of the bakery refused to, refused to do it. And the reason they refused was that they said that this same-sex marriage was contrary to their deepest religious beliefs. Now, of course, it was also a breach of the anti-discrimination laws of Northern Ireland. So the, uh, the aggrieved would-be married, the couple about to marry, made a complaint. The bakers were prosecuted and convicted. Now, what are we to say about that? The anti-discrimination laws could hardly be described as repellent or abhorrent or unjust laws. On the other hand, the <coughs> baker's concern did have really deep religious feelings. And one wonders at what stage should a democratic society respect the deep religious feelings of people, even though they do not find universal acclaim. And then other questions arise on the... Think of the offence. The offence was refusing to put icing of, in, in a certain form on a wedding cake. Should there have been a complaint at all? Why didn't the would-be customers just shrug their shoulders and go off to another baker and get it done, as they probably did in the end? I don't know what the answers are to these questions, if they're regarded as moral questions. But what it, this case does indicate <coughs> is that it is very difficult to classify beliefs or feelings, including moral feelings, as just or unjust, and also a lot is going to depend on what the if offence was. Was it a serious offence, a trivial offence? Did it actually harm anyone or did it not? Now let me also come to the South African cases. <coughs> Let me say that uh, although these, 
these moral issues certainly did arise in South African cases. Uh, if you were a lawyer in South Africa, you did not spend your time debating moral and ethical and philosophical questions. If people wanted a defense, they were entitled to get a defense. And sometimes, sometimes it turned out that you could win a case, but in many cases people were convicted of serious offenses under the South African apartheid laws, and they were convicted very often because they had indeed breached the laws. But the breaches were of different kinds. At a very early stage in the apartheid years, in the early 1950s, members of the African National Congress followed the example of Gandhi's Satyagraha, non-violent disobedience of the laws of segregation on the basis that they would be arrested and if they were fined they would not pay their fines and they would go to prison. And scores if not hundreds of people did just that. That's not violent protest, breach of the law. Well, the nationalist apartheid government very soon broke that protest. They did it simply by rapidly pushing through Parliament an amendment to the criminal, to the criminal statutes which provided that however minor the offence, if it was carried out as part of a political process, then the most draconian sentences could be passed. So that was the end of non-violent protest. And people who were anti-apartheid and were activists and prepared to break the law had to resort to other methods which eventually included methods such as sabotage. One of the people who was always opposed to the apartheid laws the one you've just heard a lot about, that is Bram Fischer. He was a most remarkable man. He was a very distinguished barrister. Most of his practice actually was not on human rights cases, it was about commercial cases. He was an expert on mining law and insurance law. He was known to be a communist, but that did not seem to interfere with his legal practice. However, as you've been told, one of the first acts of the South African apartheid government was to outlaw the Communist Party and to make any advocacy of communism unlawful. <laughs> communism in that act was defined as including any act that's designed to bring about political change by unlawful means, whatever the unlawful means were. Well, after the Communist Party was outlawed, people like Bram Fischer, who were members, carried on a clandestine Communist Party. And somehow or other, Bram Fischer was able to do this over many, many years. But eventually, as you've heard, the law caught up with him. He himself was arrested, charged, and came before the court. He was a very respected person and the magistrate released him on bail and as you've also heard he excreted his bail and went on the run. He took a new identity and he evaded arrest for several months. Now in doing that in everything he did the last thing that was on his mind was his personal gain. He well realized that he faced prison for a long, with a long sentence. He realized that sooner or later he would be caught by the police. He was not leaving South Africa. His motive, as he said himself in, his, in the speeches he made in court and in statements he made, his motive was twofold. First, he said, he wanted to demonstrate 
to the large black anti-apartheid population of South Africa that he and Afrikaner was as anti-apartheid as anyone, that not every Afrikaner believed in apartheid. Even more important to him was to continue the work of the clandestine Communist Party. And he went underground and he was there for several months and people who didn't like the nationalist government, the apartheid government, took a great deal of pleasure out of the fact that he was evading the whole of the South African police force. He, as you've been told, made, made absolutely sure when he excreted his bail that no one else, no one other than himself, should suffer any, any penalty as a result, whether financial or otherwise. And he did what he, would, what he said he would do with a very, with a handful of associates, with a handful of associates, he kept a sort of communist party cell going. It must be said that that action on his part made not the slightest difference to any political development in South Africa. For him it was completely a matter of conscience. I may say without, I hope, giving offence that for him communism was a religion. And eventually he was, he was caught. Now, I can't remember any great philosophical debates about it, but I, for my part, I, for my part, could not find it in my heart or my mind to condemn him for what he did. It, he did it as a matter of conscience. And although uh, I, my, although my political views were very, very far from his, and I actually found his political views in many ways repellent, I respected, as, as so many people did, his great moral candor and moral courage. Now, whether his courage, his honesty, and, uh, and the fact that he was faced with a situation where he was going to go to prison under an unjust law would be called justification, I don't know. I certainly did not condemn him morally. But there was a fact about what he did. He did no harm to anybody else. He didn't, he didn't kill anybody or hurt anybody. He didn't steal money. Now, supposing, on the other hand, that in order to evade arrest, he had shot the policeman, or if he had stolen money, say, from some innocent householder to carry on his political views, then I think I would have said that his own, that his own moral rectitude, his own conscience, would not justify a crime like that. So in every case, it seems to me, it's not enough to find that the law was repellent or unjust, nor enough to find that someone acted out of uh, very strong moral beliefs, very strong even religious beliefs. One also has to look at what the person did, how he broke the law, what he aimed to do, and what the consequences were. Let me go to another example. In 1942, Czechoslovakia was under Nazi rule. The Nazi headman there, protector as they called him, was a man called Heydrich who was possibly, and so this is a very competitive, uh, very competitive situation, he was possibly the most vicious and ruthless Nazi leader in occupied Europe. 
The laws of Nazism under his regime were draconian. Anyone who was found to have been acting against the interests of the Nazi government of Czechoslovakia would be not only sentenced to death, but members of his family would be executed also. Well, in 1942, there were two Czech patriots who ambushed Heydrich's car and they threw a bomb into it and he suffered injuries from which he died. The two men who had brought that about became heroes of the Czech people and I believe they still are today. It was difficult to think in that context of a more justifiable killing, a justifiable homicide than that. The immediate result was an immense boost in the morale of Czech people. But of course that was not the end of it. The protector Heydrich was immediately succeeded by another protector, very much of the same ilk. Reprisals, of course, against anti-Nazi activities were not unknown in Czechoslovakia or elsewhere in Europe. But here they took place on a very different scale. The Nazis completely destroyed a Czech village, the village of Lidice. Every male inhabitant in it was summarily executed. All the children in the village were sent away. Some of them were actually executed. Others were sent to concentration camps where many of them died. Few came back. The women were sent to concentration camps where many of them died. Some may have been killed, but the whole village was destroyed. Anyone whom the Nazis believed to have helped the two murderers, as they called them, was executed, not alone, but with his whole family. It was thought, it's been calculated, that by way of direct reprisal, the Nazis executed some 1,300 people. Well, the Nazis remained in control of Czechoslovakia until the end of the war in 1945. Now, looking at all the facts and consequences, does the question of whether the murder was morally justified have any real meaning at all? If one looks at the consequences of it, what did it achieve? How did it affect other people? It's very difficult to answer. If those two brave patriots who had killed Heydrich had been told in advance, look, you must kill Heydrich, you must realize that 1,300 innocent Czechs, including many women and many children, will simply summarily be executed and Nazi rule will continue. What would they have said or done? I don't know. I just give this example to indicate that it's very difficult to treat this as a, this question we're facing this evening in the symposium, as simply a moral problem. Wherever it arises, whether it's a matter of baking a cake, whether it's a matter of excreting bail, whether it's a matter of assassinating a dreadful murderer, the question I would suggest that must always be asked is, what is, what is the motive? What is the law that is being breached? What do you expect or hope to gain from it? What do you think the consequences would be? 
And what did you actually gain and what were the consequences? I think the only answer is that uh, given by Cato Regan. We must always accept that certainly in a country which is ruled by law, the rule of law is not simply a matter of restraint on the part of a government from arbitrary or cruel action. The rule of law also means that individuals must not take it upon themselves to break the law And above all, what I'm trying to say is that it's not enough to feel in your own heart that the law is a bad law and that what you want to do is morally right. It's given to very few of us to be able to make such decisions with confidence. And I would suggest that in the course of this debate, we should not regard it as, uh, as, so to speak, an open question. Is it morally justified to break the law or not? I hope none of us will ever have to face a situation where the answer to that question really becomes a difficult one. Thank you, thank you, Nick. 
Good evening. When Nick Sadlin invited me to be on the panel of speakers tonight, tonight, my response was that I knew nothing at all about the concept of the rule of law and could not contribute anything of value to the seminar. I added that I did not want to humiliate myself as a lawyer in the presence of Catherine and Sydney, who are the most eminent jurists I ever, I ever met. But Nick looked surprised, but felt that it could be interesting to hear from a human rights lawyer who had practiced in a society with unjust laws, even though that lawyer, as he put it, had no understanding of the legal principles upon which the law was based. I reluctantly and with trepidation accepted the invitation. I will now hesitatingly outline my simplistic views about the rule of law, but only in so far as it relates to countries with unjust and immoral laws. Inevitably, my views are based on my experience as a lawyer helping to defend human rights activists fighting against unjust laws which they had breached. The activists who I was privileged to defend were courageous human beings committed to justice and freedom. They included Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, Jacob Zuma and other leaders of the liberation movement and their followers. Amongst the lawyers I worked with were Brian Fisher, who sacrificed his own life to save the life of Nelson Mandela, Arthur Chaskelson, who subsequently became Chief Justice of South Africa, and George Bezos, the leading South African human rights lawyer of his time, and other highly principled and honorable lawyers. I personally felt privileged to defend, help defend these courageous freedom fighters willing to sacrifice their lives and their freedom in the fight for democracy for all in South Africa. After 50 years of non-violent protest, which had resulted in their human rights being further reduced, they had no alternative other than to breach the oppressive and discriminatory laws of an undemocratic government in order to achieve democracy. As someone who believed in human rights and was also a lawyer, I was willing to do almost anything I could to achieve their equipment. However, there were some limits. I recall a consultation in the Johannesburg Fort Prison with an awaiting trial political prisoner to take instructions on his defence. As I was out to depart from the consultation, he whispered to me, would I, at our next meeting, smuggle in a revolver <laughs> as, as part of an escape plan which had been hatched by a number of hardened <coughs> professional criminals in an adjacent cell who had invited him to join them in an escape attempt? I, I sort of embarrassedly explained that such a request would not fall, normally fall within the responsibilities of a lawyer to his client. However, I would reflect on it and advise him of my decision at our next consultation. You may be surprised to learn that it was not an easy decision for me to refuse to assist a client who in the fight for freedom was putting at risk his life and his family. However, I personally lacked the courage to agree and was also concerned that innocent human beings might be killed in the escape. When I met him at our next consultation, I was about to tell him of my decision with considerable embarrassment, but he got in first, and to my relief told me that the hardened criminals had been moved to a remote cell and the escape attempt was off. <laughs> Incidentally, that client, who was not an accused in the Ravania trial, received a 12-year sentence in Robben Island and subsequently became one of the most effective ministers in Nelson Mandela's cabinet. I now turn 
to my personal rather simplistic views on the rule of law and the justification for breaking it. Never having considered this concept while in practice, it was necessary for me to try to educate myself for the purpose of the seminar. So I spoke to Nick, and Nick suggested I should start with Tom Bingham's book on the rule of law. This concise, brilliant book was indeed an, ed an education, which left me rather confused until I reached the last page of the epilogue, which I will now proceed to read, although I hardly need to do so to such a well-informed audience. And I quote, The concept of the rule of law is not fixed for all time. Some countries do not subscribe to it fully, and some subscribe only in name, if that. Even those who do not subscribe to it find it difficult to apply all its precepts, quite, all the time. But in a world divided by differences of nationality, race, colour, religion and wealth, it is one of the greatest unifying factors, perhaps the greatest, the nearest we are likely to approach to a universal secular religion. It remains an ideal, but an ideal worth striving for in the interests of good government and peace at home and in the world at large. Having read and reread this several times, I eventually appreciated that the rule is an ideal and not a law, and that in practice there appears to be no universal rule of law which is applied without exception in any country in the world. Each country has its own laws. In some countries, like the UK, there are relatively few exceptions to the ideals, and in many others, many exceptions. In order to form a view on whether breaking the law is ever justified, I believe it is necessary to consider which law is being broken in the particular country in which it is being enforced. Does it involve arbitrary arrests, secret <coughs> trials, indefinite detention without trial, cruel or degrading treatment or punishment and intimidation or corruption in the electoral process. If it does, then breaching the law in trials where these conditions apply seem to me to be clearly justified. However, in all other cases where the components of the ideal rule of law are followed, it is essential that the, that, that law should prevail. I will now attempt to apply this analysis to the 1963 Ravania trial in South Africa, in which Nelson Mandela and his co-accused were charged under the Sabotage Act, a statute which was introduced only the previous year by the undemocratic apartheid government to stifle opposition to their rule. Nelson Mandela, in his address to the court, accepted full responsibility on behalf of himself and his co-accused for breaching the law. <coughs> Particularly relevant to the seminar is that he explicitly referenced his speech to the decision by the accused to turn the trial, their trial, into a trial <coughs> in the court of world opinion of the system of apartheid and the government which invented it. In his speech, he outlined the injustices of the law, and I quote, Africans want to be paid a living wage. Africans want to perform work which they are capable of doing, and not work which the government declares them to be capable of. Africans want to be allowed to live where they obtain work, and not be forced out of an area because they were not born there. Africans want to be allowed to own land in places where they work, African men want to have their wives and children to live with them where they work. Above all, we want equal political rights because without them our disabilities will be permanent. This then is what the ANC is fighting for. Their struggle is a truly national one. It is a struggle for other African people inspired by their suffering and their own experience. It is a struggle for the right to live. And he ended. During my lifetime, 
I've dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I fought against white domination and I fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve. But if needs be, it is an ideal for which I am prepared to die. There could not, in my view, be a clearer case of justification for breaking the law. I will end my contribution by quoting the same words which Catherine has already quoted of Brown Fisher, the leader of the defence team in the Ravonia trial in his speech to the court when he was on trial for his own life, charged with the same breaches of law as Nelson Mandela and his co-accused. I just repeat it because it is a speech which has moved me immeasurably because Brown Fisher was, as a lawyer and human being, my personal hero. And I repeat it again. When the laws themselves become immoral and require the citizen to take part in an organised system of oppression, if only by his silence and apathy, then I believe that a higher duty arises. This compels one to refuse to recognise such law. Nelson Mandela and Brian Fisher were both lawyers who believed in the rule of law, but practised law in a country governed by people who did not believe in the universal ideal. In breaching the law, they made a critical contribution to the transformation of South Africa into a democracy with a constitution which now embodies all the components of the rule of law. As a lawyer, I believe that law is about justice and should not be blindly followed where the laws are not just. Thank you.